Hello everyone and welcome to a very special Christmas episode of Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. Happy Christmas, Chris. Happy Christmas. Not just yet, but soon. Yeah, in Soon time. it's time. We thought we'd do a little Christmas episode to celebrate the season. So here we are. First, of course, I'll just introduce myself. I'm Ruth McPhee. Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. Here's Chris Rogers. Hi. Uh, it's just us. Not allowed anyone else around, so, you know, we just plough on. I think we should start with our drink because it's been prepared and it's just sitting in the cocktail shaker, not doing anything, not going into our bellies. Chris can explain, because he had the plan. Yeah, sure. Well, um, Christmas, what do you do at Christmas? You probably sit around by a roaring fire and drink. And uh, what better to drink in such a situation than a Brandy Alexander? Mmm, delicious. So Chris has whisked this up for us. Can you tell us what went in? Yeah, well, I couldn't find either creme de cacao or Kahlua in the local shop. Oh, dear. I've poured some on my leg already. already. <laughs> the shaker was to blame, mm. not my pouring skills. Or your, your poor choice of non-cocktail glass. I know, but we don't have a cocktail glass. Well. I've just slurped some off the spilt bit. Tastes good. Okay. Anyway, so it's brandy and Tia Maria and cream. But then to try and compensate for the lack of chocolate, it has some chocolate bitters in it. And I bought Chris those chocolate bitters last Christmas. And I must say, we haven't really found an adequate... Use for them. Yeah, so maybe yet. this is it. And now we put a little sprinkle, which is cinnamon, nutmeg, and sugar. Goes on top. Not really sure how much of this uh, garnish goes on, this Christmas garnish. Cheers. Here's our, ooh, here's our Brandy Alexander. Cheers. Ooh, it's nice. That'll do. It has a strong flavour. Yeah, I, I put slightly more brandy in than the uh, recipe you? suggested. <laughs> <laughs> what was your thinking? That we would probably want a couple and we're going to be stuck up here for at least 45 minutes. So. Okay. Stuck up here, you say? <laughs> <laughs> Stuck away from the kitchen. Mm. Great, everybody. Great. We're going to drink those. And let me introduce my topic for the day. This was actually requested by, by Chris himself for our seasonal episode. I wouldn't say it was quite a request. It, it was, was more a, 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 a suggestion of something that felt seasonally appropriate. We're going to talk a little bit today about Emma James, the master of the Christmas ghost story. And of course, with many a connection to Cambridge and East Anglia. Perfect. Just perfect for us here at Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. It's all the boxes. Yeah. Look, we all know about Christmas, sparkles, booze, maybe a crackling log fire if you're so lucky that you have a nice log fire in your house and don't live in a new house where there's no such possibility. There's not Christmas even a trees, <laughs> not even a chimney. That's good because that's where Krampus comes down. We don't want Krampus getting in. Yeah, fairy lights, tinsel, all sparkles, everything sparkly, sweet stuff, cheeses, all that kind of thing. But also a time for ghost stories. So that's what we're going to hear about today. Chris, can you explain a little about your suggestion of M.R. James to me? Well, only that I'm aware of the idea of ghost stories for Christmas, I guess ultimately from my dad who right. would speak fondly of the BBC adaptations of 
M.R. James and others stories that occurred throughout the 70s mm-hmm. under the banner of the Ghost Story for Christmas that were, they were broadcast on Christmas Eve each year. And I believe that harks back to a kind of tradition that M.R. James himself kind of indulged in and maybe developed, I guess. I don't know whether he was the, the first, but um, when he was... Whatever he was, he was master of a Cambridge college or something like that, wasn't he? I'm sure you're going to tell me. I am going to tell you. He started the tradition of having boys to his rooms on Christmas well, Eve. I'm not sure we should put it quite like that. <laughs> well, I don't know. And then uh, telling ghost stories. Yes. So as a bit of research for this, I've been doing my usual bit of reading about M.R. James. And also, though, we've watched a few of the Ghost Story for Christmas old episodes, haven't we? Mm. Which has been quite good fun from the 70s. We haven't watched them all. We're just going to have to carry on till Christmas itself. Um, and the, the Ghost Story for Christmas series, I believe, aired through the 70s initially I think the first five years were M.R. James stories short stories and then they had a couple of others a Dickens I believe and then they resurrected it in the 2000s for a couple of years as mm, well I think so yeah and actually last year I don't wish to get you off on one of your pet peeves but oh. do you remember they had a Mark Gatiss written especially for the occasion one and was that we, the radio one? Yeah. Yeah, we all know. Let's not dwell too much on my feelings <laughs> about Mark Gatiss and his uh, adaption work. Maybe I don't mind so much his original work. Well, that, well I think that was an original story. Because I think a couple of years previous to that, he did a version of the Tractate Midith, which was all right. Okay. Well, as I say, let's not dwell. If you want to hear my thoughts on Mark Gatiss and particularly his recent Dracula version, you can hear it in a previous episode. Can't remember which one, though, so I can't point you in the direction. I think it was Maria Martin, because I think it was about this time last year, because obviously Dracula was on over Christmas last year. Yes, perhaps so. Anyway, I go on a rant. Not going to do it again. Christmas is no time for rants. No, it's time for, as I said, ding-a-ling. Bants. <laughs> it's no rants, only bants. That's what the new tagline is for our podcast. That's exactly the kind of thing we want to go for. Yeah, the bants crowd. Yeah, the bants with a Z. Right, M.R. James, the father of the Christmas ghost story. And a man with many connections, not just to Cambridge, but to the east of England, and particularly the windswept coastlands of Suffolk, as we shall see. He was born in Kent... Do you know what MR stands for? Ooh, no, I don't. It's Montague Rhodes James. You can guess from that maybe a little bit about his background. Yeah, sounds like a kind of colonial overlord. Right. (laughs) Overlording it in Kent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was not a colonial overlord, but yes, Montague Rhodes James certainly gives some hint to the sort of social status perhaps that he had. He moved at the age of three with his family to Suffolk. His father was a man of the church, and we come across this a lot, don't we? Mm. It turns out everyone we know has mm. got men of the church in their family. His father was was a rector at uh, a Suffolk parish, so that's why they moved to Suffolk. So he grew up in Suffolk, in these kind of small villages. So he, you know, that, that creeps into his work later on. He later attended Eton, and then on to King's College, Cambridge. Again, you know, a bit of the upper crust about him. About old Montague. He was really first a medieval scholar mm. at Cambridge. His his area of specialty was the medieval times. He just studied a lot of manuscripts. He also studied tombs, that kind of thing. 
So not specifically medieval literature? Not literature, so, so history, different things. So he, in his quest to learn about medieval history, he would study what came his way that would help him glean information. So actually, he was, he was very renowned as a scholar, as a medievalist. But of course, that's not what we remember him for today. Oh. Before moving on to his fiction, let's quickly have a look at some of his achievements as an academic and a scholar, because I do think they give a little indication about, I guess, the kind of things he was interested in. Hmm. So here's some of his achievements. He discovered a parchment fragment, which in 1902 led to excavations in the ruined abbey of Bury St Edmunds. Here they discovered the bodies of several abbots, which had been lost since the dissolution of the monasteries. So in his research, he came across a fragment which pointed at the possibility that there was this uh, mass grave of abbots underneath Bury St Edmunds. Does more than one abbot exist at the same time? Or was it (laughs) abbots... Through history. Abbey. (laughs) (laughs) Here we find the resting place of several abbey. Yeah. I don't know. Because you say from the dissolution of the monasteries, that kind of there's a, mm. almost a suggestion there that they were all but the abbots... defrocked and beheaded or something, doesn't it? But... No, the abbots had been there for many years longer, right, I believe right. since something like the 12th century. But then However, the location had been yes, lost. Yes, exactly. Right. I haven't told you his dates. He was born in 1862 and he died in 1936, Decent. just in case that's of interest. Decent. Yeah, you know. A, a good innings. <laughs> he also wrote a book called The Apocalypse in Art, which studied and categorised various medieval apocalyptic manuscripts. Right. That sounds fun. Yeah. Don't you think? We all like an apocalyptic manuscript. Absolutely. And he sort of worked on grouping them into types and looking at lineages of how the stories and the styles all developed, which I think sounds great. Let's not forget as well that he was director of the Fitzwilliam Museum uh-huh. here in Cambridge. From 1893 to 1918. It was an esteemed role, but it's interesting to note that we think of the Fitzwilliam, of course, as this kind of historical institution. But actually, when M.R. James came into the role, the museum had only been opened not even quite for 50 years. Right. So it was still, of course, it was an important position, but it hadn't reached that kind of very... uh, institutionalised perhaps status that it has now. Was it still there? Because it's part of the university essentially, isn't Mm. it? Has that always been the case? Yes. It's always been that Cambridge University went, well, let's start a museum. Well, there was a, um, well, that's a whole other podcast, the history of the Fitzwilliam Museum, but it was the Viscount Fitzwilliam basically bequeathed his art collection on his death and a sum of money to build a museum to house it, which he envisioned would be a kind of rival to some of the big neoclassical museums in London. And that's how it developed. But he he put that into the hands of the university. Maybe a story for another time, but one of the original architects who designed the Fitzwilliam Museum and started work on it fell to his death, I believe, from one of the spires of Ely Cathedral. Oh dear, what was he doing up there? I guess some architecture work. (laughs) (laughs) Scouting out, you know, I don't know. The East Anglian Gaudi. Maybe we learn about him another time. <laughs> During his directorship of the Fitzwilliam, he catalogued the fine manuscript collection, which the Fitzwilliam does indeed have one of the finest medieval manuscript collections, I'm going to say, in the world. Mm, bold. bold. Bold, I know. He also acquired many objects that reflected his interest in Egyptology, such as mummified remains, right. sarcophagi, all that kind of thing. Brought any curses upon himself? <laughs> well, I don't think so. Actually, despite his quite these macabre interests he had his his life seems to have been quite uneventful so no no evidence of curses i'm afraid just a lot of collection of interesting things and as i say quite macabre i think these mummies and coffins and we won't get into the dubious area 
of how these things were acquired. Mm. That's a can of worms that I'm not yeah. prepared or, or to indeed, open. Whether they're still there and should they in fact be returned. <laughs> can of worms. Not going to open it. Okay, so you can see from this short summary, I'm going to say quite rudely short, given all the achievements of Mr. James's <laughs> life. You've just glossed over them to get the interesting I've bits. just squidged them into one paragraph, one a brief explanation, before we gallop over that, getting into the ghost stories. He had this interest in things like uh, the apocalypse. We see that sort of slight aspect of horror, which appears in art, in literature. And this, I think, comes through in his ghost stories as well. As Chris suggested... Thanks, Chris. He first devised these to tell to students, choir boys, colleagues at King's College when he was there. And he sort of started it as a bit of a ghostly Christmas Eve tradition. And he would gather them around, possibly in his chambers, possibly just, you know, do they have a mess hall? (laughs) That's the army. (laughs) A JCR. What's a JCR? Is it Junior Common Room, I think it's called? What they have in Cambridge Colleges. Okay. He gathered them in his JCR. Well, not his JCR, their JCR. Okay. They all gathered. Imagine it. And he also sometimes uh, told these stories at something which is called the Chit Chat Club. Do you know of the Chit Chat Club? No, I don't believe I do. I'm saying it slowly because the Chit Chat Club seems like to me the kind of thing, if you say it too fast, you're going to come a cropper. Who knows what garbled mess will come out of the mouth? <laughs> like you ever care about that? <laughs> I care. I care today. The Chit Chat Club. The Chit Chat Club was apparently a, as Cambridge University Library describe it in their um, information about it, a self-selecting <laughs> and secretive club. Oh dear. Old boys club. Yeah. It was uh, academics, scholars who wanted to... I think the idea was that they would bring pieces of writing that they had done, whether it be non-fiction, fiction, scholarly work, and they would read that to everybody and then they would have a intellectual discussion about it. And uh, um, presumably, if that does not still exist in name today, there are many similar societies Absolutely. that offer such a uh, um, service. Their idea was that they wanted to promote, as they put it, rational conversation. Oh, the best kind. It must be rational all the time. So he would sometimes take his stories to the Chit Chat Club. And they would hear them. I don't think his stories are rational. No, I mean, I was just going to say, that's probably, uh, well, I mean, today it would be very much the kind of thing that would be looked down upon by the kind of intellectual elite who are otherwise discussing their ideas and thoughts on new thinking. But I suppose if he brought them in at Christmas, it was maybe seen as a bit of a... <laughs> End of term. Yeah, exactly. Like, like oh, bring let's, games in. let's all just watch a, a film. <laughs> 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 we'll get we'll get M.R. James to read one of his ghost stories and we'll have a Humor relaxing him. time. Humor him, come on. I think, you know, I think it was uh, maybe a light-hearted bit of the Chit Chat Club that they would partake in this tradition. So his stories soon developed their own particular formula. Now, Chris, Mm. I think you've read more M.R. James stories than I have. Can I tell you the formula? Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if you can suggest what the formula is from your experience of Um, M.R. James. Well, there's almost always a kind of framing around the actual story, which Mm -hmm. is of a storyteller delivering it to the reader. Mm -hmm. And quite often that is an academic or a researcher or a doctor or... You know, a man of letters yeah. who has stumbled upon some artefact which uh, gives insight into a gruesome or <laughs> macabre story from the past. Yes. And quite frequently they are telling that to a colleague sure. or disbelieving family member. And I think you can see what you, if you agree. I would say that that use of a kind of a framing device is quite typical in sort of gothic literature. Yeah, absolutely. Literature. Any of those, Algernon Blackwood mm. or... Um, 
Arthur Macon or even mm-hmm. actually Lovecraft employs mm-hmm. that kind of thing quite a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. So you're almost, you're hearing the story. It's already... It gives uh, an air of legitimacy to it. I right, think, okay. That would not otherwise be there if it was just in the telling. You're hearing somebody who's discovered these facts for themselves, recounting them, rather than just being told them by a... That's interesting, because I was going to say, to me, it almost gives it a... Um, it already begins to take on a slight edge of folklore. Right, Because oh, see, you, yeah, yeah. The, in the recounting of it, it's already at, at second or third hand. I suppose I mean so the same thing. Already... By legitimacy, the idea that it's it exists... It's, it's not just being made up. There's a, there's a fabric to <laughs> yeah. it and a history. But yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, obviously Dracula and Frankenstein and things like that have that uh, sense of a retrospective telling. Even film noir, you end up with that, don't you? You start at the, the end and then you get this kind of recounting of the tale and then that's how I've ended up here with this poison in my heart and a, <laughs> a cursed skull rolling around my living room. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Friday Night Round ours. <laughs> So absolutely, I think that that idea of the the sort of scholarly protagonist, Mm. always male, of course, naturally. Yeah, I can't think of any exceptions. No, there won't be any exceptions. And even maybe a little bit of a naivety in that character. Well, I suppose there's two extremes. There are either like the uh, the, the young thrusting, yet to be jaded by, I don't know. (laughs) A young thruster. Scholarly life. (laughs) Or they're the kind of old, retired, on their deathbeds, you know. (laughs) Either end of the spectrum, nothing in between. <laughs> it must be thruster or deathbed <laughs> for M.I. James. And again, as you said, the finding of an artefact, which obviously is something that M.I. James had experience of in his academic life, is that kind of uncovering of the past, unearthing secrets maybe. Mm. And I think it's that sense of the present being haunted by the past almost, that yes. you feel that sense of history. Yep which is really strong in his stories. And I think, again, the framing devices help to establish it didn't happen now, it happened at some point in the past. And it then, within that, also refers back even further to something else that happened in the past. And I think there's the ones that I have seen and read, it's quite enclosed, the settings. Mm. So it's yes. like a small village. or Well, I mean, they're all short stories as well, mm. aren't they? You know, it's not like there's a lot of room for... He's not um... world building. No, exactly, exactly. Coastal towns. Mm, desolate. Abbeys, universities, that sort of thing. They would be the settings for these stories. And a bad business usually <laughs> unfolds, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, either discovered or about to be enacted something that i read had i didn't write the quote down but uh, something from james where he was talking about the fact that his the ghosts that appear in his stories are always malevolent their return from beyond the grave really only ever brings misfortune to all involved Mm. it's not this thing where you know sixth sense style the person that sees the ghost has to help the ghost resolve a thing and eventually the ghost will rest at peace as a result of it it's always or or even that the ghost themselves is coming back to try and do you some good a la a christmas carol sure no none of that idea of what a christmas ghost story is malevolent yeah always malevolent and james basically said he Something along the lines of, you know, it's all very well, these benign spirits, but that's not what we want in a ghost. I agree. <laughs> he wants to go full for misfortune, curses, horror, misery, probably someone dies. Yeah. The ghost stories of M.R. James were gathered together in anthology books, which were first published between 1911 and 1925. So towards the end of his life, he started to actually gather these together. They're still considered masterpieces. Mm to this very day, some of the finest in the genre. And I think his influence can be seen, of course, as well in a lot of subsequent writing. Let's get to East Anglia a bit more. Perhaps his best known work, I might say, uh, A Warning to the Curious, is set in Seabra, 
which is a fictional village on the Suffolk coast. But it's very obviously, to those in the know, a fictionalised version of Aldborough. Mm. which is on the Suffolk coast. And also, I Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, which again is is a rather well-known one, is set in Burnstow, which likewise is a fictionalised version of Felixstowe, also mm. in Suffolk. Although, interestingly, the BBC filmed adaptation shot in Alborough. Yes. So, some confusion on the <laughs> part of the BBC directors. <laughs> no, I'm sure it was choices. James's grandmother lived in Albra, so he was a frequent visitor to the Suffolk coast while she was still alive and subsequently. I have been to Albra. Mm, me too. I can sort of see how, especially in the old days, mm. would have been a, quite a ghostly setting. It's quite narrow streets. The seafront is very typically of kind of Suffolk, Norfolk, like bleak, isn't it? I'd say Albra is maybe a little bit less bleak then you go a kind of mile either, either side of it. There's Maybe. at least there's, there's a front of sorts, isn't there, in Aldra? I suppose, but I suppose it's you very... come into it from a kind of very desolate landscape, don't you? Like the marshes, all around marshes. Um, now there's um, bird reserves and things, but it's very windswept, mm. a kind of windswept look to it, quite a look of desolation. And you then come into the little town of Aldborough, but as Chris says, just quite quickly either side of that, you're just into this expanse of wilderness almost, or as far as to wilderness you're going to get in uh, Suffolk, old inns, that kind of thing. And a place whose life has been defined by the sea as well. Right. All of the, probably the reason for the town, mm. the village existing, the sea. I can see the idea and I can see having walked across that scrubland in between the marshes and the beach, the imagining that distant figure, mm. a distant cloaked figure coming closer and closer towards you and that sort of horrible sense of unease and dread as they grew closer and closer. Um, and we recently watched the BBC version of A Warning to the Curious and actually that was not filmed in Albra. It was filmed in Norfolk around Wells, one of our favourite places, and Hokum. Yes. It was decided to use Wells instead and other nearby locations rather than Albra. So instead of those desolate marshes, what we get in the BBC version is, the again, a huge beach, the beach at Hokum. The sea is mm. so far away. Yeah, miles away. The tide goes out so far, so you have this huge expanse of beach. And then you have the pine woods. Which, which is a weird combination, isn't it? Yes, and the beach, basically, you can go almost straight from huge sandy beach then you're just in the middle of what feels like very thick old pine woods. Mm. I love it though. So instead of that sort of grey marshland, the protagonist in A Warning to the Curious, Paxton, is chased across that huge beach and then he's chased into the pine woods. And I think having been there, you can get that sinister sense from it for sure. My fear of running through those pine woods, especially being that horrible feeling of being chased, would be just tripping over an old bit of root that was like sticking out of the of the sandy floor of the forest You'd and then smack, the smack on your face. Lose your glasses. Oh no, a nightmare. A pine cone would like shove into your eye. Oh dear. Oh, it'd be awful. You'd be muddy. That would be the least of your worries though. No digging here. He'd be coming after you. <laughs> I recommend that you go and watch it. And it's also, again, that, oh, it's, it feels so alone, even though people could be just five minutes walk away. Yeah, But you true. can really quickly feel very isolated in there. Well, as we discovered on what was, it turned out, the last hot weekend of the summer when we were in Hokum, mm. an insane amount of people descend upon that <laughs> bit of coast, don't yes. they, when the weather's nice. But like you say, you could wander off into the woods and only be five minutes from other people, but yet feel like you were completely alone. Yes, which is nice. A really nice feeling but not perhaps so nice if you're being chased by a spirit from beyond no, the grave. No, you probably want a few other people around in that case. We also had a look at the ash tree, which I didn't know at all 
before. No, me neither. It's not one I'd read. And the ash tree is also set in Suffolk. And the ash tree, I found, is quite interesting because it refers to horrors that are all too real that we've talked about before on here, which is witch trials. And in the, I guess, 1600s thereabouts 1700s women especially being tried and and hung so the ash tree is just, again it has that framing device we were saying about where in the story you were telling me there's even one layer further yeah it is yeah where uh, uh someone's reading about this history but then in the tv show and i thought it was belloc from indiana jones <laughs> but it wasn't belloc i spent the first five minutes going it's belloc oh no oh no it's not him is it him <laughs> think it's him oh no it's not him and it it's not him <laughs> but it did look like him go and see transcending christmas traditions go and see for yourselves how like belloc it looks but he moves to this old ancestral home but then it turns out that the ash tree has some bad business going on in it the ash tree that is growing outside his bedroom window right outside his yeah. bedroom window and there's some flashbacks to the hanging of of this poor woman it's also like you were saying though like the past and the present essentially merging being, yes exactly echoes of each other isn't it and the idea Yes. His, his life had been in a way lived before by an ancestor that yes. had uh, done wrong by people. And it had a very different atmosphere, quite more horror-y than ghosty, I'd say. Yeah, I mean... Quite it, a horror I, I found that adaptation to be a bit more... It, it wasn't quite full like Hammer Schlock, but it was more that way than the kind of yes. an eerie ghost story, wasn't it? We won't give anything away, but there's some quite surprising creatures, shall we say. Manifestations. Manifestations, yes. Very surprising manifestations. And it was also for us watching it because they're quite spidery manifestations and we have recently watched possum oh goodness which i won't go too off track but i would highly recommend if you like horror and i guess psychological horror films it's called possum it's written and directed by matthew holness who made garth Marenghi's dark place don't let that fool you though don't let that fool you into thinking it's going to be a, a hilarious romp with singing and matt berry no sir it could not be <laughs> further from that but it is excellent i would say and also set in norfolk and also set in norfolk so yes it had a it was a strange kind of when you see things close together and in your brain they spark off each other and then mm. you see sort of strange connections in things a spidery motif a spidery motif exactly the very last story that james wrote was called A Vignette. And it sounds like, I haven't read this one, I must say, because I was going to read it, but it wasn't in our books. <laughs> I didn't have much time. I could have tried harder, let's be honest, but I didn't. I'm sorry, everyone. But it sounds very autobiographical. And it's set in Suffolk at Livermere Rectory. And actually, that's where his father was, the parish rector. Okay. And again, it's an older man is telling the story of when he was a boy and he lived at this rectory and he had all these strange experiences and strange phenomenon. And this story was first published in 1936, actually several months after James had passed away. And that seems very much, I think, to be based on his own experiences, perhaps not the strange phenomena and the sinister goings on, but certainly the location. Mm. And you might think, that makes me think, oh, who's this? What a squeaker! Come in, Vin. Come closer. He's just got the fear of having been left in the house on his own. <laughs> oh, Vin. Don't worry, we don't leave you. But it does make me think there was obviously... 
He obviously drew from his own life and his own experiences in his stories, even though they have this macabre sense and they have this supernatural element, which for all we know, he he didn't have any supernatural experiences. He hasn't said, Mm. I wrote this because I experienced this. But certainly there's something of himself in the stories, whether it's in a vignette when it's this uh, sort of childhood memories of growing up in a Suffolk parish or whether it's these kind of scholarly men of letters, as you say, protagonists that are researching and discovering strange things about the past and again I think that's probably typical of some horror writers certainly thinking of Stephen King all his protagonists are writers yes well (laughs) it's there's certain it's certainly a theme isn't it and it it, I guess um horror writing becomes a way to work through things in your own psyche Mm. in a way that draws on your own experiences but also reframes them into something more sinister and more supernatural and more uh, allows you to bring the horror out a bit more I think I think just for an end bit I just was curious why do you think they endure what do you think it is about his stories that keeps captivating people and that people keep going back to them year after year? I don't know. And, and why Christmas as well? Is, is the kind of warmth and cosiness of Christmas, do you need that juxtaposition of something sinister and scary mm. brought into that atmosphere? I think they are quite nostalgic stories. Yeah, I guess so, because I'm sure there must be... I mean, I've, I've really got no idea about contemporary ghost stories but i'm sure there must be people who are writing things in the style of mr james or heavily influenced by mr james but they just they don't break through in the same way because they're i suppose it's no longer an original thing perhaps i don't know i think that they're peculiarly english aren't they yeah i mean i wouldn't even say peculiarly they're just (laughs) peculiarly peculiarly. Uh, very english but i think that and it's a lot to do with like landscape yes setting which is again very specifically English isn't it? Yes of course but I think that's sort of leads to an element a little bit of nostalgia in in part of their appeal. Yeah. Not in a bad way. No 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 no. In a again the sense of the the sort of the history of places being felt in the present day. Yeah is that only nostalgia though? It's not but I think there is a nostalgic air for sure. Maybe. And I think that that is very Christmassy in itself. That sense of doing the same thing every year, yeah, the tradition yeah. of, you well, know... Well, I mean, in our modern lives, it's one of the few areas where we do still embrace tradition, isn't it? And I, I just think it's... That sort of all ties up together, is the sense almost of a repetition of events. I don't know. I can't quite explain, but I that feeling of this has happened before, that you, you and know... And it will when, always happen this way. Yeah, and when, you, <laughs> when you're younger and maybe you go home for Christmas, and I remember, you know, when I was at university going home every Christmas holidays and it feels the same every year doesn't it and you have the Christmas tree goes in the same place you see the see your friends on this particular day then you Mm. see your family on this day and it's the same decorations come out and it's that sense of almost timelessness which I think is one of the things people find quite magical about Christmas but I think that also ties in with that M.R. Jamesy feeling of yeah well it's a a timeless landscape and a repetitive events almost I was gonna say it's a very common trope as well in eerie horror fiction isn't it I suppose I'm thinking of things like Nigel Neal's The Stone Tape, where it's like a repeating of events from the past mm. playing out in, in the present day. So yeah, there's probably something to be said. Yeah, and I do, and I do think, of course, it's that very you know cold, dark evenings. Certainly, back in the day, candlelight rather than electric light, and that kind of cozy feeling that you're somewhere snug, but outside the windows there might be, or down in the cellar, or off in the woods there might be all these strangeness going on, but you're kind of sheltered in your secret 
enclave. And then you you hear these stories about people a bit like you having horrifying experiences, but you're <laughs> safe in your little university room or whatever. You hope. You hope, yes. Until the ash tree starts scratching at your windows. <laughs> It made me think of when I was thinking about this and Christmas especially and ghost stories or horror and the sense when like when you were talking about your dad having watched the BBC things and that sense of horror and dread and it made me think of times when I had had that sort of feeling Mm. and the things I could think of were I remember the first time I saw Halloween being at my mum's old house when I was probably about 14 or something and and starting to watch it, it probably started at like 11 and I was like, oh, bosh, this on. And that sort of feeling of being up all on my own and in the cosy, warm house, but this awful kind of tense dread of of Halloween. And the other one, which you'll like, was Don't Look Now. Oh, yeah, right. And I'm sure I did watch that at Christmas. And I have a memory, I think Joe watched it with me, and that we both, again, I feel like we both come back from university. It was all, I was back and she was still living at home or something like that. I just have a sort of feeling of watching Don't Look Now while the Christmas tree lights were like <laughs> twinkling. And we both stayed up really late and watched Don't Look Now. And I just remember the end of Don't Look Now, where, of course, if you know the film, you'll know the bit I mean. And, and just looking at each other and both of us being like, like this just horrible feeling of all the tension and the mm. dreadfulness had all come into this awful bit. And I just remember that against a backdrop of like twinkling Christmas lights <laughs> and being in this, you know, on the sofa, maybe under a blanket and feeling really cosy. But the horror of Don't Look Now. Well, again, that's another thing with, about the resonance of events, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, existing through time and foreshadowing. and Yes. So I wonder if that is particularly resonant at Christmas. If that's a time when we're particularly susceptible susceptible to those ideas of um, yeah. ancestry and history and tradition and repetition and all that kind of thing. And maybe that's why M.R. James stories work particularly well at Christmas, because they have all those elements in them. Yeah, because none of them are actually Christmassy. No, of course. Well, of course. I mean, they could be, but no, they're not Christmassy. They're not even wintry. There's no snow. I mean, there might be. I haven't read them all, but. <laughs> it's not a feature. Not in the well known ones, certainly. I just had that strange memory of the end of Don't Look Now. But juxtaposed with a sparkly Christmas tree yes. in the background. And maybe I've just put that there in my mind. But I because I can't confirm. Do you know what I even Googled when has TV, Don't Look Now uh, been schedules. shown on UK TV? I was like, maybe <laughs> I can work out what year it was and uh, um and whether or not it was indeed the Christmas holidays, but it's that's how it exists in my in my memory, is that kind of horrible yet <laughs> cosy a sort of strange juxtaposition what I also was thinking was the difference I suppose between something like Halloween which is obviously the American suburbs which we're very familiar with from you know countless tv shows and films and that kind of thing and don't look now which Venice is you know you more would see it in art you know Canaletto and Turner and all this kind of thing and to then see the M.R. James films or to read them and think I know those places Mm. like I know those woods or I know those beaches is somehow connects a bit more as well there's a very good article written by the writer Robert McFarlane which was in the Guardian a few years ago I'm pretty sure it's still online which was something around the lines of the eeriness of the British countryside or something Mm. Robert McFarlane writes a lot on nature I suppose and the countryside but that particular article took as its starting point some M.R. James stories and talked about how 
it's a an idea that's kind of echoed through art in all forms mm. through the ages of of the eeriness of yes. the English countryside. And, well, and the I guess the the, the sort of idyllic surface nature of it sometimes mm. and then the idea that there's this horror underneath all these strange well as we always talk about folklore like these dark sinister undertones or you know a tree that we might say that is an interesting old tree actually has these horrifying stories that which was hung from it or you know a dead baby was buried <laughs> at its base or all these kind of things Calm which down. well you know I just it's the the memories of the landscape yeah which is fascinating Fascinating, I think. And the flatness. Well, that's East Anglia in particular. I know, but just thinking of a warning to the curious and that caped figure. If there were hills, you wouldn't see him running. But because because it's so flat, you can see him so far away. It's the horrible thing. You can see him a speck closer, 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 closer. Like it follows. Yes. Oh, my goodness. One of my (laughs) most favourite recent horror films, I would say. One of the best horror films of the 21st century, in my opinion, for that exact sense of inescapable dread, Mm. ever closer, ever closer, ever closer. Well, that's all I've got to say about M.R. James. I hope this has inspired you to go away and maybe watch some of the um, Ghost Story at Christmas versions. Just find yourself a nice ghost story, be it a book, an audio book. Find yourself one. Find yourself something sinister and creepy and snuggle yourself up. If you're lucky enough to have a lovely open fire, curl up in front of that fire, put yourself in a blanket, get a nice cat on your knee, but don't jump up with fear or the cat will spill and they won't like that. Put your twinkling Christmas lights on, snuggle yourself up and get yourself a ghost story on the go. And I think... You will feel suitably Christmassy. That is all from us today. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Vin. Yes. And have a very, very happy Christmas, all our listeners. This year, let's be honest, it's been a right old shitter. Let's all hope for better things in 2021. I am branding it 2021 Year of Fun. We're going to squeeze all the fun that we didn't get to have in 2020 into 2021. Maybe we just have to squeeze it into the latter yeah, the last half. Six months, I say. <laughs> but you know, that's a lot of squeezing. We can do it. We're up to the job. Uh, so let's look forward to that. And we will have lots of good new stories for you as well coming up in the new year. Okay, that's us signing off. See you in the year of fun. <laughs>